0: Let's kick her off. Ba In West Philadelphia born and raised we've got to keep this fresh it's the only way we've got to keep it spicy Fresh Prince of Ankh-Morpork <laughs> who would that be? Um, Moist von liquid? like he would have to
1: I know wouldn't sort of work with ankh park because ankh Park is a rough place and the thing with like Fresh Prince is he's gone from a rough place to a posh place isn't
0: it? so he goes to Uberwald or something maybe <laughs>
1: yeah or or it would be like that he's from the Shades and he went to like Ankh where like the posh people live
0: hmm Interesting. Yeah, we're getting off topic immediately, and we're like less than five seconds into this. So uh, you know,
1: you know what it'd be? It'd actually probably be like now. I'm thinking of it. It, would be, it sounds terrible. It would be um, like like Vimes's distant cousin or like nephew or something like that. <laughs> you know, because he he came from a really rough background, gets into trouble. So like Vimes and Sybil have to, you know, uh, like he he becomes their ward <laughs> in the the posh uh, big house they live in. Uh, uh, in Ankh, you know, and maybe like getting up to mischief and things like that. That's, that's uh, the
0: family-friendly movie of uh, Discworld that I really desperately want to see now that it's <laughs> popped into our mind. <laughs> um, so, yeah, Colin, what's going on? Oh, what are we doing? So
1: <laughs> we are doing Radio Morpork, the podcaster. We rate, review, analyse, discuss and argue about 30 Pratch Discworld series one book at a time. This week we are doing A full of Sky, this week I'm Colin, and this week I'm joined by... Steve Hill. Yes, I am. <laughs> um, so before we go into uh, analyzing and discussing Half of Sky in detail, I suppose we should we should recount the old plot. You want to get us started?
0: Yeah, okay. So we pick up um, a little while after the We Free Men. Uh, Tiffany Aiken is now coming into womanhood. She's starting her teenage years, and... Uh, she's gotten to the point now where she wants to establish herself as a witch and she wants to go into training. So, after breaking the news to her family that she's going to work as a maid in another town, which is something that's perfectly normal for a girl's her age to do, uh, she is accompanied by Mystic, Mi- Miss Miss Tick from the previous book, um, as far as the town of Two Shirts, a uh, very, very small town uh, intersection wouldn't really call it a village or a town just an intersection because she is on the way to another witch by the name of miss level who has agreed to take tiffany on and basically to train her up as a witch and when she arrives at two shirts something very unusual happens what would that be colin um
1: well they start to get a what, what what is it again? What what happened? Like they start at this
0: point. So encounter what, the hive. One thing to,
1: to jump backwards to, to say that uh, I think is briefly Kind of start is that we learn that Tiffany is no longer the Kelda of the Neckback Fiegel, That they've got a new Kelda genie from the Long Lake. Well, Tiffany was at her wedding to uh, rob anybody, and they have sort of a, a kind of quietly adversarial relationship. You know where. Uh, it's kind of hinted Jeannie sees Tiffany as a as a rival of sorts, sort of in in, in a less overt way than uh, Theon thought of her in We Free Men, um, so that there's kind of a distance between Tiffany and the Fiegel. So, yeah, I'm sorry, I'm struggling to remember exactly. There's some weird moment within uh, two shirts when the Hiver shows up and, and they have a. We'll take what is it? Oh, just there we have another bit too. When they're leaving um, the chalk, Tiffany meets up with Roland, who gives her uh, the the Baron's son who she rescued in We Free Men, who gives her a package to uh, uh, as a present. She doesn't open it uh, yet much to Mystic's frustration like Mm. as a witch's curiosity and and wants to see uh, what's in it.
0: But um, once they arrive at uh, Two Shirts, uh, Tiffany... Um, she gets the attention of a hiver. So a hiver is an entity that doesn't have a physical body and what it tends to do is it finds powerful minds and it takes them over like a parasite Uh controls them for as long as it possibly can until it basically destroys them and then moves on to the next host. So when she's in two shirts, um, Tiffany attracts its attention and its Here she meets Miss Level uh, in the forest a little bit away from Two Shirts. Now, Tiffany has learnt a new trick since we met her last where she can step out of her body and view herself from the outside. Now, at one point, Miss Level and Miss Tick are having a private conversation and they ask Tiffany to give them some privacy. So Tiffany takes a moment, steps out of her body and gets closer so she can eavesdrop. And this is when the hiver suddenly becomes aware of... Well, not becomes aware. she It's already aware of her, but this is when it tries to take over her body, but it fails, basically. So Tiffany kicks it back out without really realizing what has just happened. So uh, what happens after that, con
1: So Tiffany goes with Miss Level to her uh, cottage. Um, she gets heartily sick along the way. She doesn't take well to riding <laughs> on broomsticks. Uh, when she arrives, um, she kind of finds a lot of oddities. There seems to be a... like um, when she she kind of arranges her things, there seems to be a a ghost that uh, um, puts them back in place. Mm. Uh, She's kind of like Miss Level and Miss Tick have sort of let slip that there's another person in the house, but they haven't said who. Mm. Um, So then Tiffany eventually discovers that uh, she she has brought a bunch of kind of keepsakes to remember the chalk, uh, and this ghost is continually kind of rearranging them. And then she discovers that... um, uh, Miss Level is in fact two people, and as Miss Level's eager to uh, um, assert to her, it's not just that she's twins; it's that she's uh, one person in two bodies, mm. um, who in fact masqueraded as twins during her career in the circus, <sighs> as Tiffany sees from a from a poster she has, uh, and uh, now having kind of complained about this, Miss Level tells her about uh, the what, what's the word for it? It's not poltergeist; they kind of it's um, a, an ondegeist on the Geist, yeah, Oswald, who is the ghost, who is this very, um, this was, like, anxious uh, and anal, angrily retentive about clinging up in the house. Hmm. Um So then, Mrs. Level begins taking Tiffany out on her witching duties, uh, it's normally comprised of a lot of, uh, unglamorous community work, cleaning up after people, acting as midwife, uh, tending to the sick and, the, you know, the old and so on. Um... And then Tiffany is visited by uh, another young witch called uh, Petulia. Yeah, that's right. Who wants her to meet some other young apprentice witches. And what what happens when
0: she does? So she goes to what is essentially... a millennial witch gathering, I suppose, <laughs> in which uh, all the witches are gathering and they're talking about the things that they should do uh, as witches. You know, they should be using magic spells, dancing around naked, all the things that Magrat used to lament that she wasn't doing back in the earlier witches books. They are led by a young witch named Anagrama, who uh, is basically the loudest and bossiest of all the wishes, wit- witches. And she basically puts... Every other witch, they're down because uh, she just finds fault in everything that they do, basically. But apparently, all the other witches—they're constantly trying to find her favor, simply because there's something about her that makes them want to uh, her to approve of them. So,
1: yeah, she's a very dominant personality, and in fact, it's sort of ambiguous. Um how, like you mentioned, they're, them having this frustration with the traditional way in, in which witchcraft's done and wanting to do it in a, a flashier way. And certainly we get that sense from Tiffany early on that she's a bit uh, nonplussed and, and disappointed by the work she's doing with Miss Level. But it's sort of ambiguous as to how much those other young witches feel that way and how much they are just doing what Anna Gramma tells them to do. Mm. She's the, the dominant personality there. Uh, but it becomes quite clear that Granny Weatherock's has this huge reputation among them, all of the the local witches. And Tiffany mentions having met her at the end of We Free Men and uh, describes how Granny gave her a hat. And the, cat, the hat, as we kind of saw at the end of that book, is like a, a metaphorical hat, hat full of sky, if you will, um, an invisible one. And uh, she says this. I, I really love this moment. It's one of those things. I, it's very... I'm not sure she's quite a teenager, I think she's about 11 or 12 here, but it's very kind of like adolescent tween sort of moment where you say something, like that microsecond as it's coming out of your mouth, you think it's the right thing to say, and then as soon as it leaves your mouth, you're horribly, you know, <laughs> embarrassed by it. And, and that's what happens to her when she um, points out her, her invisible hat to them, <laughs> which they all find kind of very amusing and childish. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, so then she goes back to um, Miss Level's space kind of in a, you know, a, a bit of a sulk, a bit of a, um, uh, I suppose not so much a sulk, it's just feeling really uh, embarrassed at that t- pretty teenage, oh I want to die. mortal Moment. Yeah, and at that point she takes a step outside of herself using her see me technique you mentioned earlier and is possessed by the hiver.
0: Yes indeed and this is when this is kind of the central crux of the story when the Hiver basically assumes um, Tiffany's identity and she once she is possessed it's not immediately clear to Tiffany what is happening to her because she's only vaguely aware that she is possessed at first um, because there's many aspects of her personality that are retained while the Hiver is taken over her body uh, we do learn later that it isn't exactly possessing her mind, but rather it has removed her conscience, so that it allows her to do all the things she normally would do if she had no uh, sense of uh, justice or morals. So while she is in this state, uh, a number of things happens. Um, she goes, to, uh, basically, she wants to. She goes. To, she goes to Anagrama's witch's house first, which is I forget her name now. What was the name of her the which looking?
1: Oh, Miss Earwig. Miss Earwig, yes. Uh, although she insists on pronounce it Mrs. Ahwig. Ah, uh, yeah. <laughs> uh, which is a kind of like, oh, um, uh, what's that? British sitcom character who pronounced bucket as ah, uh, 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 I said bouquet. That's it. Um, kind of had like delusions of being posh. <laughs> reminds me of a uh, a woman whose um, house my uncle done a job in called Doyle, who insisted on referring to herself as Doyle. <laughs>
0: She sounds like a delight. But um, <laughs> once she arrives at Miss Awish's uh, house, uh, she sees Anagramma again and basically displays to her that she is, in fact, a very powerful witch by uh, taking hold of Anagrama psychically, telepathically, and just like lifting her above the ground and just showing, giving her a display of her power. Um, but she does this. Partially to intimidate her, but also to get Anagrama on her side. She tells Anagrama she wants to get all the witch get-up that she has, the the cloak, the, the hat, uh, the amulets, all that jazz. So Anagrama takes her to a, a dwarf's a smith. Uh, is it a, a jeweler or a blacksmith or a combination of both? No, he's kind of
1: like he's just a general witch goods seller. So it ranges from everything from clothes to wands to jewelry, jewelry. Mm. Um, uh, so like it's kind of hinted at, like a, being a dwarf, he's uh good at the metalwork and things like that, but it, it seems more um, I don't know, more specific than just being a, a blacksmith. Um, also, we should say earlier on, the Fiegel had dis- like had discovered the presence of the hiver and they were worried about Tiffany. Genie had initially forbade Rob, anybody or any of the other Fiegel from going uh after Tiffany out of uh. Jealousy, I suppose, and you know, worried that they're over where their loyalties actually lay to her, or to Tiffany. But eventually, um she gives Rob uh, leave to go, um, and oh, is she puts she puts a gas on him? Is it to to go or to come back?
0: Sorry, say again. Oh, it's. Um, it, uh, I think it's to come back. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So
1: like that, he, he's going to do it, but he has to uh, survive. um So he and and the other people basically uh, disguise themselves as a person by like all kind of like they steal a lot of clothes, including stealing one whole person's beard. And uh, they they kind of form this weird uh, composite person. Um, It reminded me of, do you remember we done a Clive Barker's Books of Blood in, in college?
0: Oh, I never actually read them myself, but yeah, yeah. Uh,
1: there's one story at the start about these two villages who um, they have, like, a ceremony every year where both the villages just form into this giant. Like, so, you know, you have... I I can't remember how exactly they do it, like, whether they build a structure to work around, but you'll have, say, you know, dozens of people being the arms and, you know, whatever, dozens of people being the head and different things like that. They've got to fight the other village's giant, but um, that's what it reminded me of and how, like chaotic and messy and uh, what a vivid image that is of all these tiny people pretending to be one big person <laughs> hmm. but uh, they, they take some of the gold they have in their uh, the old kind of burial um, old man they inhabit and use it to pay for passage to go after Tiffany hmm. um, but just as they, they reach there, as you say, that she's already been possessed by the hiver and she's gone and she's got all these um, fancy uh, fancy gear in the, the witch's shop, uh, basically on the back of, of threats to the owner.
0: Mm. Um, she does. Um, it just should be said that uh, as another display of her power and some very vivid imagery occurs in the witch's shop when there's a wizard that the dwarf has hired basically kind of as protection there but also lend the shop a bit of authenticity um, but this wizard he's basically a college dropout but he basically tells Tiffany to uh, quit haggling or uh, you know uh, disproving the magical qualities of the gear that's there and Tiffany in uh, reacts to this by basically turning him into a frog which isn't as bad as it sounds well it is as bad as it sounds because turning into a frog is fine but In order to turn him into such a small organism, she has to displace his mass, which she basically turns into a giant floating flesh balloon that floats above their head, which is very, very uh, disconcerting for the readers, but also to Anagrama, who is terrified of Tiffany at this point. And so once she does this um, and she goes back to Miss Level's cottage, uh, around this time, the Fiegels have nearly approached her here and... Miss Level uh, basically confronts uh, Tiffany for the behaviour that she's heard, uh, she's been engaging in. Uh, At this point, what happens, Colin? Tiffany
1: kills one of the the Miss Levels. Yes. One of uh, Miss Levels' two uh, personages. Um, At this point, then, uh, Granny Weatherwax arrives to... Does she arrive... Or,
0: um, she rises after now at this point um, basically Tiffany I think she, she unconscious or she falls asleep or something oh no! yeah yeah Rob, Rob anybody goes into Tiffany's mind that's it
1: and from the inside of her mind they they kind of fight out the
0: uh, the, the
1: influence of the the hiver hmm um, so the hiver flees uh, Granny Wetterwax arrives, who uh, had earlier also become aware of the presence of the hiver, and she and Tiffany um, join up to to hunt the hiver down. Mm. Uh, although, not before, Tiffany goes to old Mr. Weevil, who uh, was one of the, the old, kind of a seen old man that uh, she and Miss Level would take care of, who was always anxious after his money, which was um, he was. Uh, saving for uh, essentially, essentially funeral expenses which she had stolen under the influence of the hiver. Uh, she confesses to him that she stole it uh, but he finds that it's it's been replaced with even more money by the Nakmak mm-hmm. using the gold from their very old mount. And while she's racked with guilt he's pretty nonplussed even delighted with this turn <laughs> of events <laughs> because he has more money now and he resolves to go down the street and marry some uh, old woman. So she kind of acts as witness to this wedding where the collective ages of the bride and groom are close to 200.
0: Okay, so at this point, uh, yes, Tiffany and Granny devise a plan to uh, draw the Hiver out, which they're going to do uh, up in the mountains away from people. So this is kind of a bonding experience for Tiffany and Granny, in a way. Uh, Tiffany gets a better idea of what kind of person Granny is. She also sees... Some of Granny's weaknesses, which is kind of a rare thing to happen in um, Discworld books, there's a seems to be a big focus on the fact that while Granny is a very determined and very uh, powerful person, she's also physically still an old woman, and this comes across in the way that she stumbles a little bit up the mountains. Um, all of this kind of comes together for naught because once they're up in the mountains, the hiver doesn't really come out, and They decide, okay, the hell with it, basically. And Granny says, let's go back to the Witches' Trials, which is a big event taking place in uh, the village. The idea behind the Witches' Trials is that every witch comes out and presents something that they've improved upon since the last trials. It can be a bit of magic, it could be some new ointments, it can be pretty much anything that they specialize in, essentially. And everyone knows Granny shows up for it and she wins. Even though it's not an official contest, she unofficially wins every single year because she always does something quite incredible. So it's while they're at the witch's trials, suddenly we... Uh, so they're all intermingling when suddenly Tiffany feels the hive approaching at high speed. So she tells everyone to basically, you know get out of the way, she they're all panicking and she's just trying to like keep people safe until eventually the hiver approaches. And at this point, she learns a little bit more about the hiver and what it does and what kind of thing it is. Um, she basically discovers that the hiver doesn't really understand humans at all. So it doesn't really know what it's doing when it takes over the hiver, or when it takes over humans. And the main reason that it does this is sort of as a way to seek shelter from the world because it's sensitive to all the emotions running through the world and including all the pain and suffering and agony and this is why if it seeks shelter in powerful minds so that it can kind of be blocked away from all of that so um yeah yeah not just emotions
1: but sensations too it's like even i think early on it says they predate the creation of the world Mm. so it's as if they're you know they had this memory of just like all her blackness and nothingness and suddenly this kind of colourful, vibrant, living world is too much for them to process mm. um, so uh, yeah, they take shelter within, within powerful minds to avoid that so Tiffany essentially guides the hiver, she names it first of all yes. Arthur, Uh and then sort of soothes it and guides it towards the death it wants and didn't know how to get uh, but having done this it seems she will have to die, too, that she won't be able to go back from this sort of liminal space in between death and life, the uh, the big desert you've got to walk across to find judgment at the end that we've seen in, in other Discworld books. But Granny Weatherwax is able to come in and uh, rescue her from, from that liminal space. And they both uh, awake in The Witch Trials. Uh, There's a huge sensation, basically, like people aren't quite sure what happened, but they know it's, you know, more powerful and uh, kind of uh, notable magic than they've ever seen. And a lot of Tiffany's uh, young friends, as a consequence, are kind of encouraging her to like challenge Granny Witherock sort of on the back of of that feat. And I wasn't sure maybe you were clear on this. I wasn't sure whether they were saying challenge her because they assumed, oh, if you've just done that, like we saw you disappear appear, you're obviously more powerful and you'll beat there now, or the challenge would be kind of, top what I've just done there. Um, mm. You know, And she wouldn't do anything more, she would just ask, say to Granny, like I just disappeared and appeared and you can you do better than that? Uh, but in any case, she doesn't um, challenge her uh, and uh, the trials kind of fizzle out um Afterwards, Tiffany goes to sea, Granny. Just uh, Uh,
0: sorry, one thing, just it should be a little side note, that it's uh, Petulia who wins the witch's trials in the end for her pig boring, which is the equivalent. Oh, does she, does she win it? Yeah, she wins it in the end. So uh, pig boring is a variant on horse whispering, uh, which because pigs are her speci- specialty while she is training to be a witch uh, but because there are no pigs present she uses a sausage instead and she somehow manages to win the witch trials for that. That's a little side note just to say but continue.
1: Okay. <laughs> uh, yeah I like picturing how exactly that, that would have played out <laughs> but um, yeah so Tiffany ends up going to, to Granny's uh, house and uh, giving her her hat back. Granny had given her her, her real hat Um at the conclusion of the, the trials uh, Tiffany talks about finding a hat for herself and she shows I suppose like a, a better understanding of Granny than we've seen anyone except maybe Nanny Hogg or a time from McGrath um, have mm. uh, when she sort of shows how Granny turns her weaknesses into strengths like that they make the um, they're talking about concentration earlier and they say like uh, try not thinking about a pink rhinoceros and you know once you hear that it's put the image in your head and you can't not think of it and the reason Granny can do it is because she's never seen a rhinoceros and has no conception of what it looks like because for all of her kind of power and wisdom she's this very uh, parochial, you know stubborn, uh, semi-literous uh, like old woman hmm. um, and mm-hmm. Granny's sort of impressed by this then we close with Tiffany going back to the back to the chalk uh, and basically um, I suppose uh resolving to be the the witch of the chalk in the way that she's come to terms with that that her grandmother was, whether her grandmother knew it or not or whether anyone acknowledged her uh one as that. Mm. Um and she says that when she's older she will wear midnight, but now she'll wear a hatful of sky and a nice title drop and a reference to a future title <laughs> and to that uh lovely poem I when I'm older I shall wear purple whose author escapes me. Mm. And uh that's the book, right? Yeah.
0: Nope, I think that's more or less it. Um, any other little details are minor enough that I'm sure we'll talk about them now while we're talking about it. Um, so, yeah, I I think I mentioned on an earlier podcast that I'd read this book before and I was looking forward to revisiting it because I couldn't remember it. I think what I actually misremembered was the fact that I read this book before because I'm pretty cert- certain I haven't because I did not remember the plot at all while I was reading it. So I must have thought I read it and didn't. Um I think if you think back now, when we were talking about The Wee Free Men, I think I kind of revealed that I wasn't a huge fan of it. it. It was a bit dry for me. It didn't really work. I think this one is considerably better. I think this is a much better book overall than The We Free Men. It's interesting because I found a parallel between The Wee Free Men and Hatful of Sky and uh, Lords and Ladies and Masquerade. So if you think back, we were in deep awe of Lords and Ladies because it was just like, it was like our number one book for a very long time. And then we were highly appreciative of Masquerade because it had the sense to kind of tone it down a little, you know, lower the stakes and allow a more human kind of story to come out. And this is what I feel has happened in A Hat Full of Sky. And I think it benefits from hugely. Whereas before, you know, uh, Tiffany was fighting the Queen of the Elves, which is like, seems like a very, very... You know, high high ranking kind of adversary, and this one we're going up against the Hiver, which is still very threatening, but manages to seem less so because simply based on the fact that it's called a Hiver rather than the Hiver. You know. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But um, what did you think?
1: Yeah, yeah, I um, would tend to agree. I probably I'm trying to put my finger. I, I think I prefer this one to. Uh, uh, we Free Men maybe part that as kind of like surprise value um, like yourself probably <laughs> I, I hadn't read it before whereas I, I had heard the, the audio of We Free Men so this is kind of when we started this out like it's um, the uh, painfully long time ago now myself and Rose I sort of resolved then that I wouldn't read any Discord books I hadn't read until we got to them in the, the podcast mm. uh, so it's it's always it, there's only a, a, there was only a handful of those and it's a nice surprise to, to get to them um, and I think uh, something that helps this book for me is that, like, because she's a little older, like, her concerns and her thoughts are a bit more teenage, which this is probably just my age speaking, but, like, that feels more relatable than the kind of precocious mm. child she was in um, uh, We Free Men, who was still, like, I, I thought, I still thought was a very, very good character, very well drawn um, and interesting. But this is, I don't know, more relatable, like, I, I mentioned in when we recount that plot, that moment where she's meeting with the other witches and you know talks about her invisible hat and they get so embarrassed Mm. it was painfully accurate (laughs) for me I I, I never remember I kind of claimed to have any invisible hats but I remember (laughs) a lot of moments of like oh why the fuck did I just say that you know like no one will ever let me forget
0: about this my life's ruined forever oh have you blocked that memory from college do you remember when you were saying (laughs) (laughs) oh no those those moments still happen to me now long after (laughs) teenagehood
1: I think I've I've just I've just gotten a little better at uh, processing them and not feeling like the world's
0: end yeah i have to say i i related this a lot uh specifically because there's a strong element of homesickness in this like where yes there's a really really good moment when she just she's it's her first night at miss level's cottage and we see a very very vulnerable tiffany like where she actually seems like a young girl as opposed to this like i can handle anything kind of little soldier who we see in the last book and um that really hit home for me because and we see this throughout the plot as well her entire persona her identity is challenged because so much of it before was based on the location she grew up in so much of the chalk is a part of her own personal identity and because she's been taken out of the chalk now she's a little bit adrift she doesn't really know what to think of herself you know what, what does she actually stand for when she's put into isolation like this and again this is just because of the position I'm in whereas I'm on the other side of the world from home so it feels like very strong very relatable and I can completely understand where she's coming from this idea of um, you know not having all the safety nets around you to kind of help guide you in how, in what kind of person you are what dictates your actions and how you see yourself instead she's just it's just her surrounded by strangers in a place that she's never been before and she has to kind of come to terms with the kind of person she is and that's a very strong theme that runs through this well, quite cleverly I have to say I think because the main antagonist is something that threatens her identity and that's the central theme that I feel that spoke most strongly to me uh, unless you had a stronger one that I've I've missed
1: <laughs> no I, I think you're bang on I think it's all to do with identity and place and, and I think that uh, I mean uh I'm uh unlike yourself, I'm, I'm in Ireland now, but I did have the experience of living abroad, so those feelings of homesickness rang really true to me as well. That sort of uh, feeling of... um like Homesickness is an odd sort of feeling where unless you're really young and Tiffany isn't here, like she's old enough to realise it, you feel almost kind of embarrassed and inadequate for feeling that way, you know what mm-hmm. I mean? Uh, like, like you you feel this, this ache, feel as if you shouldn't be feeling it. The book kind of I know, like draws attention to that. You have her kind of struggling with her feelings, like not feeling comfortable with feeling sad or homesick. And it resonates too with uh, teams that have gone through all the witch-related books about place and about like the witch being this really important role in their community um, and having this relationship with the community and even with the land itself of that community that is very... Um, deep and powerful, so for her to be uprooted from the only place she's ever known is uh, yeah, an interesting kind of challenge to to put her character through. Mm,
0: mm. And like it's interesting because we have seen this happen before in witches abroad, but whereas in that book, you know, we're seeing these witches going to like this new land and they're basically they've got there's this, this powerful force of nature going through and they basically affect everything they encounter rather than the other way around. Here it's it's a much more vulnerable state that we find Tiffany in, and it's very it's it's a very it's a very very int- it's it's a great book for it's a great young adult novel. I know we've brought this up in nearly every single young adult novel that like have, we've come across here, but this one I feel like really nails it because it's got its target audience like right set in its mind and it's just very good at what it does. Um, Talking about the importance of like you know finding your identity, asserting yourself, which is something that every teenager has to go through. Because mm-hmm. there's, I don't think there's any teenager in the world ever who has basically figured out exactly the kind of person they are when they're like thirteen or fourteen years old, and they'd never changed since then. If there were, there'd be a lot more Blink One Eight Two fans out there, I'm sure. But uh, yeah, <laughs> <laughs> um, but it's interesting, and it's interesting that it's like it's it's underlined how malleable and changeable identity is that it's not something that's just going to be like fixed and that's it um, we see this like with how uh, Tiffany questions whether or not she actually wants to be a witch when she learns all the tasks that Miss Level does now we saw this to a certain extent with uh, Magrat in like the early witches books where she didn't really feel like she was suited to witchhood but that was actually resolved Quite quickly, in a way, because she well, actually, not quite quickly. It res- resolved over the course of three books, where uh, Magrat realizes witching isn't actually isn't really for her. So instead, she becomes a queen, a nice little alternative, a bit of a step down, according to Granny Weatherwax, but still, <laughs> you know, a noble profession. Um, but this one, um, it's interesting because Tiffany does become a witch uh, or she that certainly seems like she's becoming a witch we'll probably see this develop further in later books but it's just interesting to see that despite the fact that that's her ultimate end goal and there's very little doubt in the mind of the reader that she is eventually going to become a witch it's not an easy road for her to travel she does second guess it she does question whether this is what she wants to do and does she want it to be defined by the role that she plays in society and if that's the case is she just going to become like another Miss Level who just looks after doddery, ungrateful, senile old people. And that's really interesting, the way the book plays with that.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Actually, it, it's it's uh, it's interesting for me to hear you talk about that because I had a note here where I just said, it uh, hits on similar arguments over witchcraft as witches abroad and lords and ladies, but does it feel redundant? Why? And I wasn't really sure of that myself. Like, I wasn't sure whether... Why I, I I could point to these similarities that you have found between it and the earlier books, but that it still felt really satisfying. You know, mm. I, I I didn't feel that when I was reading this was as if, oh yeah, we've heard this before. Here, Teddy's retreading really old ground, but just doing it for younger readers, it felt kind of fresh in a mm. way. Mm. Um, and I don't know, maybe it's it's a, a personality dynamics thing. Like it, um, in those earlier books, like McGrath, although she's older, is a much meeker personality than Tiffy. Tiffany,
0: uh, as her
1: little brother calls her, <laughs> Tiffany, mm. um, uh, and she's in immediate proximity to Granny, who she's having these kind of arguments with, of being, you know, sort of shut down by. Whereas Tiffany is a bit more confident, kind of in these spaces like with Petulia and Anagramma and the others. I suppose has more space to explore this alternative, which would, it sort of reminds me as if this almost reads as if if we had got sections of Lords and Ladies from the point of view of Agnes or one of the other girls mm. in um, Diamanda's new coven, you know, but they're, they're, them kind of taking these uneasy steps into new ways of doing witchcraft, kind of being driven on the back of a, uh, you know, sort of dominant personality within the group, but also having legitimate gripes or uh, questions about, like, you know, the traditional ways of, of, of uh, witching. Hmm. Um, yeah it's fascinating and you see it kind of with the Hiver who's uh, it's like it, it brings out the aid of the people it goes in it, it reminds me of it's I'm sure i I'm almost sure you would have drawn this comparison to it, but it's like the Venom symbiote
0: oh yeah 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 actually believe it or not i didn't but you're 100 percent right that is exactly what it is yeah (laughs) yeah right right down to
1: the kind of uh the fragmented identity referring to itself as we
0: yeah
1: (laughs) and not like fully taking over the person it possesses for want of a better term but kind of exacerbating certain elements of their personality and certain repressed desires they have you know Mm. um whether it's you know the, the urge to wear eyeliner and do really goofy dancing in Spider-Man tree, yeah. <laughs> or whether it's the urge to be kind of a proper fearsome magical witch here when tiffany kind of buys her fancy gear and turns your man into a frog and all
0: yeah it's it's really interesting the way they tackle and do you know what i found really funny afterwards when i was just like writing up a few notes about this is that there's a really interesting parallel between tiffany and the knack mcfeagle when they're going around dressed up as this like person with a mad beard and like he's (laughs) like it's it's really bizarre, but yeah, the Mac McFiegel basically become one single entity, which which is something that I remember having a bit of an issue with in the first one because I was like, um, it doesn't feel like there's any one distinct Mac McFiegel, with the possible exception of Rob anybody. But in this book, it actually makes a lot of sense, and it's really interesting because they are kind of like one fierce identity, but distinct in each little part of them because they can't agree on the way that their new body should function so that they're basically falling mm-hmm. apart and it's really interesting that we've got this very serious uh, side of things that's going on with um with Tiffany and she's trying to find herself and like assert who that is she is and uh, the Nat McFeegler are going through something very similar but on in a very Nat McFeegler way which is almost just like a drunk struggling to like keep his legs going and moving and trying to get home it's yeah it's it's just fun how like this theme is weaved almost the whole way through it, um, especially, actually, with Miss Level as well, who's a really interesting character on the basis of her having two bodies. What did you think about her? Like, what did you read into that out of curiosity? Um,
1: yeah, I, I, I hadn't connected, joined all the dots, but now you're saying that There, this notion of kind of identity and fragmented identity is there with her where she's two bodies, but they seem perfectly in sync with one another. Mm. Um, as contrast to the fecal who are like one body made of many bodies aren't in sync at all and uh, yeah Tiffany who has this fragmented self as well I think it's interesting you have the idea of when her first body uh, dies uh, and granny convinces her that uh, kind of to hold on to that other part of herself so she essentially has this like spectral extra body mm. that, that can move around
0: yeah
1: um, yeah and it's it's uh, like, it's a fascinating thing. On, on the one hand, I don't know, it, I suppose it seems like it's like a like a crutch or a way to ensure that the, the rest of her, for want of a better term, doesn't die of shock after one half does, you know, through Granny convincing her, look, that this isn't really as big a change as she thinks it is, and you know, she can still uh, cope the way she used to. Mm. Um, on the other hand, it's, I don't know, it, it, it's interesting... What it says about her identity that, like, be, being bisected in that way is such a part of her that she's going to kind of hang on to it no matter what?
0: Well, I think it's um, the way I view it, viewed it so, was I felt like the metaphor that was coming in there and throughout lots of different parts of it is the idea of us having multiple identities, that we behave Mm -hmm. differently in different scenarios and in different settings. Um, We might have like an ethnic identity, a political identity, a personal identity, a role identity, all these different identities, and they might cause different behaviors to come about in certain ways now this isn't particularly evident with miss level because both of her bodies basically serve the same function there isn't really any major difference there but it's more of a physical metaphor or like a literal that met- uh, tangible met- metaphor i suppose and the idea maybe being that like maybe if she is forced to give up one part of her identity like let's say for example um I'm trying to think, let's say you are a Japanese English teacher, for example, right? And let's say you, this is part of your identity, you identify as I am an English teacher, that's my role, it's what I carry out, this is what I consider, this is something I'm quite proud of, therefore, it is part of my identity. Suddenly, you find that uh, your role has been disintegrated, you're fired from your job and you have to do something else. So you can still. Are you trying to tell me something here. No, I'm not, not at all. <laughs> but <laughs> this is something like it's not that like uh, she w- once that happens. It's not to say that oh well, I was never I'm not a teacher anymore, and it's therefore not part of my identity. It's just like eliminated. Now I'm just a Japanese person. Um, but rather, it is something that formulated her identity, or yeah, your identity at that point. So it's something that you have to hold on to the experience of it and it can feed into your future role identities or your own current personal identity. So it's the idea that past experiences, which might not make up past experiences and past uh, concepts of self, although might not be your current concept of uh, self, might still inform your current identity and concept of self. That was my take on it.
1: Yeah, yeah, I think that's that's a good uh, assessment that it's like you always you carry all of your experiences and all the people you ever wear with you, even if you're not them mm. in the present anymore. I, I think there's an element, too, where Tiffany alludes a lot, particularly when she's under the uh, influence of the hiver of Miss Level not really getting any respect even by the people she takes care of. Mm. And Miss Level says about how she um, she no one in the village knows that she's two people. They assume, mm. uh, they if they see the two of them, they assume it's twins. And I think there's something about like, there and the fact that, you know, no matter how well people know you, uh, and particularly if they don't know you very well, if they just know you essentially through work, as the people in the village do with, with Miss Level, mm. uh, there, there'll always be this side of yourself, they don't know, and sometimes that's your best yourself is your best company you know Yeah, and yeah. Um, that there's always more to you than, than others can see and her having this like literalized second self that people don't really know is there uh that she can kind of i suppose like uh come back to and communicate with um yeah there's well now something nice there touching about the kind of like Ultimately, that like multiplicity of of selves you have is enough to support you against any uh, glib assessments or dismissals from uh, how people outside of you perceive your identity.
0: Mm. You know, I read something um, before we started here. So um, there's this idea that have you ever You've probably seen like you've probably seen this in like meme form online sometimes. You know, where there's a diagram of like, uh, here's me looking in the mirror and here's me in a photograph, and like you see one of them is like, Oh, I'm looking absolutely perfect and beautiful, and then the photograph's just like your face is all twisted and out of place and like, oh I drunk. The idea being that like you're more comfortable looking at your reflection in the mirror rather than like in like a photograph or a picture. And I think this is I can't remember who wrote it, but basically what they said was everybody has a memory of their ideal self, which comes from what they've seen, like in reflective surfaces or mirrors. So like, you know, when you look in the mirror, you have it in your head. This is what I look like. And that is your ideal self. But it's a reverse image. It's not a perfect image at all, because you are Mm -hmm. looking at yourself from a skewed angle. So when you actually see yourself in pictures, it sometimes can be a little uncomfortable. What I found really interesting when I was reading this was bringing it back to Tiffany, who doesn't use a mirror and actually views herself the way she actually is. I thought that's really interesting that like she, unlike most people who like have this memory of themselves that isn't ideal, she actually can see herself the way she actually is, which is very interesting. I found myself wondering, did Granny Weatherwax do that as well? We never have any moments where she steps out of her body to look at herself. She just goes borrowing. So I know when Tiffany first used it, it's kind of to gauge her own appearances, and I can't really see uh, Granny Weatherwax doing that, Not re- unless it was a case to make sure she looks like a witch and gets respect. Yeah,
1: I was about to say, I kind of can in that regard. Like, we have the, uh, is it in Witches Abroad, we have the bit about her kind of having despair about the fact that she has just naturally really good teeth and she kind of wanted to,
0: like,
1: (laughs) blacken stumps of the archetypal, like, you know, witch hag. Mm. Uh, um, So I I can imagine her, yeah, in an animal's body, uh, (laughs) looking herself up and down, kind of seeing how she looks. That, what you said about Tiffany gaining this perspective on herself that the rest of us don't have. I think it's a really good point because I, I thought about the, the see me power uh, ties into, you know, those notions of identity and, and self and so on. Um, I, I remember being unsure about it at first, because I, I thought actually it was one, I think in like just some like this encyclopedia or something. I'd read about it before. I read this this book. Uh, like, and I, and I think at the time I couldn't remember. I read that and I was like, how oh, does she do that in We Free Men? Which is the only one I'd read at the time. But anyway, I remember taking it, it felt a bit like sort of contrived. Like, uh, as if, like, you know, um, one of those really specific superpowers mm. you see people coming up with that has, like, one or two uses. And you know the writer in their head almost had, like, the, the gimmick or, like, the use first before the power. Right. And then when they used it for that, you're kind of like, what's the sense of, you know, saying anyway, like whatever, like, oh, let's introduce a new X-Man and he, you know, <laughs> uh, he has the ability to translate any languages. And like, it's like, yeah, uh, linguistic barriers have never meant much to the X-Men before. but This story it is going to, so this guy can, you know, do his thing. Mm. Um, and, and, and like, when they get really specific like that, it's it's a weird, I don't know, maybe it's maybe being ultra nerdy and fanatic, but I can sort of buy like, uh, this person got like super strength or super speed or whatever. but When it's really specific, I, I find myself wondering: I'm like, how, did, how does this even work? Like, what process gave them that power? Yeah. You know? And this obviously is doesn't have the same kind of superhero origin style to her gaining the power. But I did have the same feelings of like, uh, how how in the world would she come up with that as a power when she's kind of like, <laughs> you know, probing and beginning to try and do stuff as a witch? Um, but then when I saw how it's used. I it did tie so well into the themes of the, the book and obviously it allows for a moment where the, the hiver possesses her um, that's kind of neatly structured as well where we have an earlier moment where we think that's going to happen mm. um, and it doesn't sit so in perhaps you know perhaps for some we, we let our guard down as readers thinking oh I, I thought she was going to be possessed when she done the sea meeting mm. evidently not, I wonder how it's going to happen because you of know what's going to happen but uh, but, but then it happens anyway when she's kind of feeling emotionally vulnerable. The one thing I thought was missing a little, and maybe we'll see this a bit more in, in future Tiffany books as she gets a bit older, is I, I had just been watching uh, John Berger's Ways of Seeing for Brushing Up for the Cultural Studies Lecture I was prepared for, anyone who hasn't seen these, uh, they're all available on, on YouTube. Um, very 70s, mm. but uh, <laughs> fascinating kind of. They are. Uh, yeah, sort of right into Berger's hair and giant coloured shirts, but, uh, but just fascinating looks at visual culture and how it works and um, yeah, really excellent stuff. But anyway, in, in the second episode, he's talking about the history of uh, the female form in art and how kind of women, true art and true representations are sort of taught to constantly be observing themselves, mm. essentially like observing how they will be observed by men. Uh, and, and I thought like oh it's a pity there's you know for a kind of like preteen girl just getting that like perhaps that self-consciousness about her you know not only her physical appearance but also just like her societal appearance like in that same way where she gets really embarrassed about how she looks in front of the other young witches I thought it was a pity that we don't see that a bit more explored when she's sort of regarding herself in that way but but maybe that will be something that happens later on uh otherwise I thought that the a power that I had initially imagined would seem quite contrived actually Mm. dovetailed really neatly with the themes and ideas in the book
0: yeah I think you're right but by the same token like if it is going to be brought up I think it would make more sense to happen in a later book when she's a little bit older and these kind of themes would be much more um, relevant like when she's like when she becomes like more of a young woman rather than like a teenager um, I think and I think it will become more evident probably I, I hope it is something that is touched upon and even if it isn't I'm, I'm glad at least that it is touched upon lightly here because um, it is done very well we, we get a sense of this when she's in uh, the witchish, uh yeah the magic witch shop with all the uh, bits and bobs and there's uh, that cape that she gets which she ultimately gives to granny weatherwax at the end as a gift and actually this reinforces what you were saying earlier because there's that moment where she put uh, granny weatherwax puts it on and she says oh i don't know it'd be a bit too fancy for me and tiffany's like oh there was like the shadow of a question at the end of that sentence and she's like no no it really suits you he's like hmm well okay fine I'll, I'll try it then so yeah there is definitely an element of that like how people look and like how people look to the world. Uh, That is really, really, really interesting, all right. Um, What was I gonna say there now about um, Tiffany? There was another thing about her stepping out of her body. I think it is really good that like she has this ability and it's just different enough from Granny Weatherwax's borrowing to seem like its own thing. Like at first when I saw this initially, I thought like, oh, this is just gonna become uh, uh, borrowing. It's gonna be like she's the Robin to Granny Weatherwax's Batman. But um, mm-hmm. I'm glad that, like, it comes about in a way that feels natural. It's consistent with the world of witches that we've come across already. But it also very much has its own function. And it causes problems that we haven't seen occur for Granny Weatherwax before. So, yeah, I feel like, uh, like, like you said, I, I can I know where you're coming from. The idea of writing the use of this uh, ability first and then uh, kind of writing their way into that. But I do feel it was handled very, very well overall. Yeah. yeah. Sorry,
1: I've been on a bit of a superhero kick lately, and your Robin to Granny Weatherwax's Batman <laughs> uh, comment just sent me down a rabbit hole. Thinking, does that make like McGrath and Nanny Flash and Green Lantern? So <laughs> <Granny> <laughs> <with> Batman. Oh, <laughs> this this is It's a long and pointless discussion that would we'll probably. Uh, Divertus elsewhere. I feel like uh, just to
0: throw one thing in there. I feel like Munström Ridiculi is probably like Superman to Granny Weatherwax's Batman because like <laughs> yeah, are, is, they're exactly. kind of chummy, but they're also not exactly chummies. Like so, yeah. That's well, yeah. We won't we won't go down that entire. <laughs> um, oh,
1: just w- one thing that that is relevant uh, in the in the kind of superhero comparison. So I made the comparison earlier with the Hiver and the the venom symbiote in um, Spider Man. <laughs> And I think there's there's a similar kind of thing that that's played with, uh, uh, probably in a couple of adaptations that I remember mainly from the, the 90s cartoon. Is of well, like when your heroic character, be it like Spider Man or Tiffany, comes under possession of this kind of entity that is causing them to act out a bit. There's always, as as a reader, you have this or, or a viewer. Uh, you have this combination of sort of like queasiness and anticipation and satisfaction. You know, in that you're thinking, oh, they're gonna they're gonna take a step too far, and what's you know, worry about what might happen? But you're also sort of satisfied at seeing them do things they normally wouldn't. You know, so you have these points where they're kind of uh, just like almost effortlessly beating and defeating a a villain that's been pestering them, that even though you know they're doing it under the influence of something malign uh, or uh, something malignant, rather, um, you still feel satisfaction about it. But then it gets to a point where they feel like they've gone too far, you know, like, whatever, like, whether Spider-Man trying to actively kill people when he's, uh, you know, under the symbiote, or whether it's Tiffany here, initially, her kind of dressing down of Anagramma feels really satisfying. Mm. And then as it goes on, you're like, oh, this is just it kind of queasy like it feels like a very mm. uh like like emotionally abusive friendship where she's just like that in fairness that anagramma seems to have with all of the other witches but seeing core on the other side of it isn't a sort of turn ah, about his fair play uh kind of um, feeling it's more a feeling of oh this is equally horrible mm. even though she's a bad person
0: <laughs> and yeah and you know it's i think that's what makes it really interesting is the fact that um when we are uh, confronted with this idea of, like, you know, an id versus uh, ego sort of situation where all these people's passions are let loose, to basically act how they want, it is satisfying. It is something that we almost want to happen because you're seeing them dealing with all this, like, in Tiffany's case, dealing with all these ungrateful people. And uh, it just feels, like, so monotonous and, like, such drudgery that you're desperate for it to do something, like, more. And we can see, but. And, like, we can see that, like, it is a very appealing thought. And this gets muddied up in one way that I thought was really interesting. One of the first times when Tiffany meets, uh, I think it's when she meets Granny Weatherwax for the first time. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's when she meets Granny Weatherwax. And it's like, um, while they're doing the little tasks around just to kind of keep Tiffany's mind off the hiver who's kind of sort of still in her mind. Tiffany starts asking her about Granny aching. Now... Granny Aching in the we Free Men was almost unambiguously a good witch, or if she was a witch, she was at least a good person. She was just kind of considered mm-hmm. this like almost saintly figure who Tiffany looked up to and just like praised and was like yeah, it was great. What I really liked about this book is it throws a little bit of doubt into how good a person Granny Aching actually is. It doesn't change our perspective by any means. I still come out of it feeling that Granny Aching probably was a good witch. But there's that moment where uh, Granny asks, uh, she's telling Tiffany how some witches go bad. This is a fear that Granny has had like in almost every single book that she's featured in. She's a wor- worried that she's going to turn into another Black Alice who stops caring about people and just starts telling them how sh- they should be living their lives, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, getting rid of free will. And when she starts asking about Granny aching, Uh, Tiffany starts thinking about some of the things that granny aching did and like how she acted and then granny says did she help people and Tiffany's instant answer is going to be yes but then she hesitates and thinks about it and she's like she's not that sure how much she actually helped people and um she was aware of like whispers amongst the village folk that whenever they were doing something bad in the in the previous book there was a moment where um one of the, she sees a man beating his horse like relentlessly trying to get him to move faster and it's the only time she ever saw Granny Aiken kind of angry where she goes over, slaps him in the face and basically tells him like to treat your animals well and the two dogs that she has, thunder and lightning, are kind of poised to attack and the man looks absolutely terrified and ever since that moment we learn in this book the villagers are kind of thinking or asking themselves before they're cruel to animals like, what if Granny Aching is watching? Oh. And there's a bit of fear in that. And that makes Tiffany consider what if the person that she thought she knew, like who, like she, this is the person I thought I had completely figured out. What if she wasn't the person I thought she was? Which again, ties into this theme that we're talking about. Again, this idea of multiple identities, how you put on one role, one concept of self for on display for other people but you might be completely different inside.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, 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 absolutely. And it feels like a process of growing older as well, like in the way that in the first book you had are initially dealing with grief and, you know, uh, part of that grief is uh, understanding that the person's gone for good and processing like all you've done with them and all you didn't do that you wish you did, but like part of growing older as well is realizing that like not all the adults in your life are these perfect paragons of virtue, um, and that you know you learn from them as much by avoiding their mistakes and their excesses as you do by you know doing uh, following their advice. Um, so yeah, I, I, I like that element of it too. Um, I, I don't think we, we touched on the, on the Feagle at all here, but they're uh they're great here like they're really really funny yeah i love um i love when when uh, miss level wakes up and rob is doing the uh you know how many fingers am i holding up thing and she's just four and he looks at his hand and he's like oh yeah you would have to know enough to count and <laughs> he doesn't know, how many fingers he up. You know? um or, or when he's when he's learning when he's when he's learning to read and he's just describing all of the letters. Yeah, that's brilliant. <laughs> the fat man walking. You know when he um oh she leaves that that and Tiffany kind of gives her that message about the different smells that they use to sort of bring her back to herself, mm. which is another nice tie into Granny Aiken and the the sheep liniment mm. and the tobacco that she used to associate with her. But, like, they say, like, it's a message, and he just reads out all the letters, and he's feeling, like, so happy <laughs> with himself. Like, I love to finish on our old friend, the fat man walking. <laughs> and then uh, I think it's the outside Gon- Hermes level, or the Chronicle, just reads out what it actually says, and he's like, oh, yeah, anyone could do that. Yeah. <laughs> well,
0: it takes a real leader to read each individual letter, yeah. That's <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it is, yeah. No, the Mac good, are really good in this, and I actually... I remember, again, it was an issue I had with the first one is that I felt that although they're really interesting as an idea, as these people, I felt like too much focus was given to them in the first book and that they couldn't really hold it up. Whereas Tiffany was the more interesting character and it was kind of divided between the two. And like it had it had definitely had good moments. There were parts of it that I really enjoyed but well, I think they take a bit of a step back and they benefit from it hugely in this book because like every moment that they're there is brilliant. I, I particularly liked how, um, oh, what was it? Miss Level says, if you don't come in here right now, what was it? If if you don't uh, come with me right now, I'll bestow a curse on you. The curse of knowing that I won't offer you a drink of whiskey if you don't come in. It's like, oh, that's a terrible curse. How could you do that? <laughs> <laughs> uh,
1: I, and I, I liked the the stuff with... Uh, Jeannie, um who initially like uh, seems just this petty uh, adversary for tiffany that's you know at first you think she almost just might be a, a like a plot device both to get tiffany out of her arrangement as kelda mm. and to ensure that the, the fegal aren't with tiffany so you know she can uh, uh so we can have her inciting incident and then they can uh, rush to the rescue and be part of the climax but then she gets fleshed out a lot talking about her like her homesickness mm. And how her position as Kelda sort of separates her from all of the other Figo. Like there's a lot of parallels there with horror and witches, and um, frankly, and particularly with horror and, and Tiffany and what Tiffany's going through uh, at, at the moment. Mm. Um, yeah, it's it's really good.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I think the parallel there is really really good. What did you think of um, the little the little horse that uh, Tiffany gets as a gift?
1: Oh, from Roland. Yeah, I, I think it's it's an interesting one. Um, I love that description of the uh, the chalk horse that it's based on. That I, I believe it's based on a, a real uh, prehistoric kind of um, monument or like uh, painting painting in you know, somewhere in Britain. But um, that it, it's it's what a horse is, not what it looks mm. like. Um, and again, which is again that idea of kind of identity and, and appearances. Um, And it's a nice way of kind of like it's both tying Tiffany to home, but it's also sort of opening up new possibilities for her because kind of, I suppose, accepting it and valuing it is sort of admitting to herself that she likes Roland in some way, you know, Mm. Uh, where it's kind of hinted at that she's previously been, they've had a very sort of, you know, childish relationship of her studiously uh, avoiding him, um, but kind of wanting his attention, which he then, gives very clumsily, uh, and uh, the fact that she uses it to make her first uh, successful shamble yes. is uh, something i seen coming, but was, you know, a nice, satisfying
0: moment, nonetheless. Yeah, the fact that she uses both that and uh, Rob Anybody as part of her shamble, it's such... It, it's, <laughs> yeah, that's great. It's a great moment because um, the, the shamble is something that we saw in the we free men and it's just kind of it was kind of a nice little thing here but it's nice that it comes back again and it has it has a real purpose here because when tiffany practices plenty of times trying to make a shamble like during the book because uh when she's trying to do all the typical witchy tasks like flying make a shamble yada, yada 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 she isn't very successful at it and i feel like what is trying to be said here is that she is basically being trained how to be a witch the same way miss level was trained how to be a witch. So basically miss level is training her. Like she would train miss level. If you, if you get me. So she's making a shambles. Like, here's how I make a shamble. Now you do it. Yeah. And yeah. at the end of it, what it really takes is for Tiffany just to realize how to do it by herself and very much make one that is made up of elements of herself made up of like, um, her time with, uh, the the knack McFiegel and like, the horse, which simultaneously recounts her very teenagery thoughts about Roland, uh, if if they are in fact there, but also bring about a bit of the the land of the chalk, which very much makes up a big part of her personality, and it takes this this formulation of her own um, this emblem of her own identity to actually make it work. And we see this again as well, obviously, when she gives back Granny Weatherwax's hat. She's refusing, you know, even though it's a great honour what she's been given um, from Granny Weatherwax she appreciates it enough to know that she needs to make her own if she wants to be sure of Mm -hmm. who she is which again like it's it's funny that like this book in many ways I feel is quite simple but it's so tight like, it does things so well. Yeah, it's it really it's is. like, it feels like a much smaller story than many that we've seen before. Again, much like Masquerade, which we talked about before, but it does it so well. It manages expectations mm-hmm. brilliantly, and it just pulls it all off so well that I just, I have I've, I've pretty much nothing but good things to say about it. I really enjoyed this book, I have to say.
1: Yeah, well, actually, while we're on, how, how tight it is, it has a really interesting structure, I think, where I, 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 might have been just me but I feel like uh, I I mentioned earlier when she got the horse from Roland I knew she was going to use it for uh, making a shamble Mm. and you have those um, you know expectations you build throughout it just whatever having read enough discord books having read enough books that as I'm reading I'm I'm sort of semi-consciously thinking to myself oh this is where this book is going Mm. so initially then when when Jeannie tells Rob to go and find Tiffany I thought that was going to be like the build to the climax, you know, so we wouldn't get, she, the Hiver wouldn't get to her and take her over till the very end. Well, till maybe like the final act, shall we say. Mm. And that's when the Fiegel show up. And, you know, maybe uh, we, we have Granny showing up there and there's a big showdown, right? But in fact, we have that halfway through the book, she gets possessed by the Hiver and uh, the, the feagle, um arrive. Uh, so then I'm thinking, okay, so now the rest of it is about Miss Level and, the Feegle trying to you know rescue Tiffany from the Hiver, uh, kind of right the wrong she's doing, what she's possessed. Well, maybe we also para, uh, like kind of like have running parallel to that horror within her own mind, trying to kind of get herself free, mm. and that's going to be the climax. And then she gets, uh, and then when she kills one of the Miss Levels, like I found genuinely shocking uh, that for one, in, I don't know, maybe it's an adjustment of expectations within a, uh, it be, you know, it being a young adult book. There does seem something a bit more jarring about this very, aver death mm. uh, in it. But then for her to be freed from the hiver, essentially it's two thirds away through the book. I was again left scratching my head thinking, okay, so where, where is this going now? Yeah. Like, you know, where is. Like, and, and, uh, but despite that, we, we end up having a really satisfying, interesting conclusion with like Granny and Tiffany kind of scouting for, for the, uh, the hiver with Tiffany, trying to find out that the third wish, like what the, um, you know, what the true nature of the Hiver is and finding that it isn't something entirely um, malicious and just guiding it towards its own um, destruction. And in that sort of epilogue bit almost with Tiffany visiting Granny and then Tiffany on the chalk on her own. It's, yeah, it's just wonderfully, um, I don't know, structured that, for me at least, continually subverted my expectations mm. of where it was going to go and unfolded, new more nuanced more satisfying ways to tell this story than i had supposed it was going to go down
0: yeah 100 percent. i especially like the bit where they go up to the mountains which again feels very climactic and it's um you know you feel like oh they're going to go up here and there's going to be this massive showdown and then it never happens but completely subverting your expectations, you get something even better because you get this wonderful interaction between Tiffany and Granny and their relationship solidifies so much more than it was before. And even though it's not what you're expecting, it turns out it's what you secretly wanted. And I found, (laughs) to bring uh, very, very nerdy parallels back again, not bringing you back to superheroes but to video games this time, I was watching a YouTube video about the comparison between Metal Gear Solid and Metal Gear Solid 2. And how the <laughs> second game is like uh, completely subverted fans expectations what they thought they wanted was a repeat of the first game and that game goes to great lengths to show you that's not what you wanted at all because every time it gives it to yeah. you it's like a, you know it turns out to be a pale comparison and instead like all the best bits of those are the bits where it steps out of the first game shadow and like becomes its own identity and this does it as well which I found really interesting because there's plenty of bits where it's kind of shadowing uh, the Wii Free Men like when it goes up to the mountain like even the idea, like of going up to the mountains, and it's colder. I think up there. I, I can't remember. Was it snowing in the mountains when they go up there? Um, I don't think it's snowing, but it yeah, is I mean, cold. It's kind of inhospitable and cold. Yeah, yeah. which kind of sort of mirrors like the showdown between the Queen and uh, Tiffany because she was creating all the snow everywhere. And, um, yeah, like you said, you think you thought that the feagles were going to arrive and that was when the big showdown was going to come. And maybe Granny Weatherwax would show up as well, which is exactly what happens in the first one. So and also Mm -hmm. uh, this wasn't the case for me, but it might have been for other people. Maybe they thought Tiffany was such a great character because she was just so like stoic and confident and great. But instead in this one, we get a Tiffany who's very... Confused and questioning, and doesn't really know who she is, and maybe she doesn't even want to be a witch anymore, which is completely thrown Mm. us under the. This is not at all the Tiffany we signed up for in the first book, but turns out to be much more interesting. (laughs) So, yeah, I I just thought that was like very clever, very well done.
1: Yeah, yeah, with regard to that, I find it really interesting how it handles the climax of of that. So, yeah, the the end of the the first one, where, as as I said, this does feel like a kind of step down in scale from battling the the Queen of the Elves. Mm. And we have Tiffany kind of reflecting on that, uh, almost in a weird way. I mean, sort of uh, um, reflecting on some of the criticisms we had of it, of this very dreamlike finale, where she summons these kind of nebulous, but incredibly uh, enormous powers to defeat this, this evil being she's kind of reflecting on it here. It's like it almost feels like a dream mm-hmm. and, you know, was it really me? That's not something I can do again. So uh like it's it's not something I can kind of um take pride in. It was it was interesting. It, it kinda of reminded me got like parallels with like the, the bits early on in like Harry Potter when everyone's kind of fawning over him mm-hmm. and he's like thinking that, you know, these people uh value me for something I can't even remember and I, that I don't even know who, how I done. So uh, you know, he's having certain feelings of uh, what's the word and look for, like inadequacy um, about it, and and something similar here with Tiffany, and I think perhaps all the more uh, affecting because in this case we read that book, so we kind of went on that emotional journey with her, saw how she kind of like overcame things, but still can understand why she doesn't, uh, I don't know, why did not feel confidence I suppose. Mm.
0: Um, I I want to try and think of like some of, uh, we've we've fawned over this book a lot, which is something that. I know we said we try not to do <laughs> where we just say like oh it's brilliant isn't it it's great it's perfect so just trying to think of some of like the flaws of this book um, so I suppose one of the few things now it doesn't bother me a lot but it is something I feel should, should be mentioned I feel like a lot of the characters they're they're, they're a little too two dimensional I don't know if you'd agree with that I feel like we've met all the witches before you know in the little circle so Anagrama and petulia seem very familiar i feel like Anagrama is like a repeat of that witch from um lords and ladies i forget her name now mm-hmm. the one who chal- diamanda yes yes diamanda she seems very much like a repeat of her and petulia i think um she kind of seems a lot like agnes when she was a part of Diamanda's little group. Yeah. So, like, it feels very similar to that. Now, it serves the function of the book very well, don't get me wrong, it's perfectly fine and functional, but, um, uh, there's not an awful lot there. Um...
1: Yeah, there is a similar feeling to We Free Men that, like, Tiffany is the only fully-fleshed character. Mm. Uh, well, I grew up granny here, I suppose, although granny benefits from the fact that we know her from other books, so everything she does uh, is kind of inflected and invested with you know particular emotions and uh, motivations by us the readers because we know our uh, from from other texts mm. um and and like we remain it's a question of whether or not that matters you know whether kind of like Tiffany's story is enough to uh, hold it together and, and the rest of them need only be um you know archetypes to, to fill it out mm. um,
0: I also feel that um Oswald is a wonderful like, creation. I don't it's something that I don't think we've touched upon before, the idea of a reverse Poltergeist who's like an obsessive consul- compulsive and needs to clean everything. It's mm-hmm. it's a really nice idea. Um I it it is just an idea, but I I wonder does it need to be any more than that? Does it does it need to be anything more than just a character within Miss Levels' house because we never actually meet him as a character. He doesn't speak. Um and he's like just kind of something there to add personality to the house and maybe that's perfectly fine but because there's no real reason for him to be there it makes me question like could have could more have been done there um yeah yeah i mean we have the kind
1: of plot related thing where he disappears when the hiver's there so that kind of lets Misleveled out, something to miss, but you're right. He does sort of feel like one of those ideas that Pratchett has where he really likes the idea mm. and he's just going kind to of work it in somehow. And it, well, kind of like the Nack McFeagle where I first in, a uh, um, Carpe Jiccolo, yeah, you know, where yeah. he felt like, I, I love this. So I want to get it out. And you know, sometimes like often those ideas are quite. Pleasant and interesting to read about, but they they don't fit in as uh, neatly or as deeply as some of the other parts of the book. Mm. While we're on the the subject of like potential criticisms, what did you think of a bit with uh, when Tiffany goes to uh, confess to, to Mister Weevil that she's taken his money, uh, and then finds that the the Fiegel have replaced it, and he ends up getting hitched to the other album?
0: Yeah, it's this. It's good that you use the word potential here. So I'm fine with the way it played out, but it does feel like missed potential. I would have quite liked it if it had been something that Tiffany had to actually confront because that would have been a really difficult emotional problem that I feel like her character really would have benefited from. Now, it's fine. I understand why... Uh, Terry Pratchett didn't want to detract too much from the plot. He wanted to keep the momentum going because at this point, we still haven't actually caught the hiver. And that would have been like, that might have messed up the pacing a little bit. Um, Because I haven't read this alternative story that doesn't exist, I can't say how well the pacing would have uh, maintained if we had had more of an emotional payoff. So I feel like this is the better of two options, but there is there could have been a way where there was a much more emotional payoff, where Tiffany was forced to deal with a genuinely difficult problem that would have forced her to, you know, confront her own uh, selfish desires as a witch um, that would I would have liked to have seen. But ultimately, I still think it's just something that like it's wishful thinking. I think he probably made the right call to keep things moving at the pace that he did.
1: Mhm. Well, I've gone to go into the deep recesses of unseen university library to uh, find that never been written version of <laughs> of a hatful of sky that has that scene. Mm-hmm. I I think I I don't know. Like I found it really affecting. But there is a certain sense of having your cake and eating it too. Where like Tiffany, in fairness, he does put her through the emotional ringer, and that she still feels very guilty, and it, in some ways, all the more guilty because he isn't you know angry or upset. Um, so she doesn't have that. I don't know. She can't process her guilt properly. But at the same time, she is also let off the hook by the fact that the the gave uh, giving the money. Having said that, that moment where you see that they left there, like I found incredibly sweet and touching. Mm. Um, like it's set up earlier there, there, by that lovely bit when they talk about, uh, which is is it, one of the, like Pratchett's best gifts. Is this kind of deft maneuvering between like comedy and and. and uh, like I don't know treasures or a comedy and like feeling and pathos mm. the bit where the Fiegel are talking to Miss Level about how they're always trying to watch Tiffany but they find it harder and she's going to stuff up Bob's space and they're completely oblivious to why she might want to do this <laughs> but then they mention that they sneak into her doll's house and watch her from there <sharp> and she says what are you guarding her from and they say everything <sharp> and there's just this like lovely sense of um, oh, like, uh, protectiveness and the kind of fierce love they have for her like that that's just there and that that one word and that kind of sets up this moment where, where they get her off earlier and i really like mr weevil mm. having this moment of clarity where you know he says he, he knows his uh uh relatives are dead um and there's something i mean there's something nice in general about the idea of like old people not having to follow this kind of like narrative of decline where they can have this, you know, second chance and, and get married. Um, and, and there's also something interesting in Tiffany learning that like, when you, how would you put it? Like when you commit an act or do something to hurt someone else, you're the guilt that you feel about that thing isn't the beginning and the end of that thing, Mm. you know? So she feels guilty having robbed him. He doesn't feel that bad about it because he's ended up with even more money. Mm. She still kind of feels guilty and almost like is is baffled by why he doesn't feel worse and almost sort of wishes he would, because she could comprehend the situation better. And it's kind of like learning like, yes, it's important for you to process your guilt over this, but also that doesn't mean like the, the rest of this, you know, you feel guilty because you hurt another person. So, like on some level, kind of learning from that means acknowledging that other oh, person is their own person, and they can have their own kind of feelings and reactions to this that might necessarily gel as well with how you want the situation to go, or you know how you process your own guilt. But you just have to respect that because you know that's that's what respecting other people's all about. Uh, having said all that, it does feel a bit wish fulfillment, d like that he goes from being all to the point of, you know, not knowing whether his son or daughter are alive or dead and getting their names wrong to having this, you know, clarity and and, and getting married. Um mm. Look, I, I know from personal experience, like dementia and senility isn't an entirely one-way thing. People with those, you know, in those states can have these moments of clarity, but it, it just, I don't know, it, it feels a bit like it's both incredibly sweet and almost too sweet.
0: Yeah, yeah, I, I know what you mean. And... um it's it, it did kind of it swung a little bit too far too sweet for me i i am never really a big fan of things that wrap up that neatly but um for the most part it worked very very well i thought it was a bit much to have him actually get married there and then but um I, i'm willing to let it slide what i found interesting there was um the fact that we're dealing with a character who as you said is senile and almost poetically tragic is like I felt like it was a kind of a fantasy version of Alzheimer's he was dealing with because he doesn't really know who he's uh who is around him and I think at this point um Terry Pratchett I'm not sure if he'd been diagnosed at this point I don't think he had I don't think so no, no. so this is why I like poetically tragic but um what's interesting about that is the idea of like how we define identity is um th- there's multiple different types and I think I can't remember if it was John Locke who did this, maybe you can tell me if it is, but he was the one who came up with this concept of memory identity, whereas, uh, now this is like a problematic definition, which he acknowledges himself, but the idea that as long, as far back as you can remember yourself being, that's the person that you are. So like, you know, so he originally came up with the idea of subconscious identity that like, you know, um, your subconsciousness, uh, your inner thoughts—that's that's you. That's your inner. That's who you are. But this is kind of uh, destroyed by the fact that you go to sleep most nights, and so your subconsciousness is basically just like put on standby until you wake up the next day. Does that mean you're a completely new person every day? This is why he mm-hmm. flipped it onto memory which is similar and it goes as far back as you can remember but this is problematic as well because you can't remember everything you can't remember like the day you were born unless you're Brûtha from Small Gods but that's yeah, a different thing but it's interesting that he brings this up because he Mr. Weevil has this life had this life and it kind of calls to mind that like, yeah, you're not the same person like when you're a young man or a child as you are in your old age. And as you said, he even has almost a complete transformation when he's like originally this senile person to this completely, almost completely lucid, happy, cheerful man. It feels like a different person. But maybe that's the point. I mean, like you said, it is a bit jarring, but maybe it's doing that to kind of hammer home the point that like, yeah you're still you you're just taking the experience you've had up to this point and reconstructing a new identity based on your old one but it still remains consistent and it's still you because this is something that tiffany has to deal with the fact that she did terrible things when she was the hiver or the hiver was inside her but it's not necessarily the fact that like she's a new person now or that was a different person when she was inside her it's all her but she's just building mm-hmm. on these experiences that may not have been the her that is the present her.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Like, thematically, it's, it's very nice and, and plays in. I suppose it's just, uh, I don't know, the, I suppose, like, from a plot level, the contrivance of, like, mm. you find yourself wondering, oh, hang on, I, I assumed this fellow was in a much worse state of mental decline than he evidently is, mm. um, and it seems a bit convenient from that level. But you're right, like, thematically was that that notion of him having this like extract to his life where he's going to find a new late love but it isn't going to kind of undo anything like the children he had before that died or his first wife or anything like that yeah pretty much plays in with that uh multiplicity of identities that that runs through it um on the subject of all that uh what did you think of the, the hiver itself
0: um yeah so like um so one thing I liked about this book is that it takes a lot of very complicated and complex ideas and kind of boils them down to simplistic forms to kind of get their message across. Like we discussed with Miss Level and her two bodies and um, Tiffany being like, uh, Tiffany's subconscious being somewhat misplaced or affected by uh, the Hiver to kind of emphasize the idea of your identity. There's mu- Your identity is multifaceted and all that. With the Hiver itself... I feel like it might have been slightly ambitious. It takes on an awful lot with like who it is and like how, like the, the kind of creature that it is. It's, I like the way it plays out. I like its arc. Like I particularly like the fact that it's only able to like die, you know, get what it wants once it gets a name, i.e. an identity. That's particularly good. Um, mm. I suppose... From the perspective of someone enjoying a young adult book, it's from if, if, from, re, from the perspective of someone reading a young adult novel, it's somewhat unsatisfying to have an uh, antagonist that isn't quite so clear cut. From reading it uh, as a regular novel, it's much more interesting that way. So you know, I'm I'm a bit torn on it. Like you know, it's 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 great that it's a complex. Uh, antagonist if you can even call that by the end but it's also slightly infuriating that it doesn't tie up as neatly i know i said that i don't like it when things tie up neatly but it's like it's I, i'm torn on it I, I i'm not really sure how i feel about i know i like it but there is a tiny sense of uh, dissatisfaction how about you how did you feel about it
1: yeah well i i like a lot of it as i said like the, the structure of this book really pleasantly surprised me so that the turn of it kind of revealing to be uh, a lot less malicious than it had appeared at first was a, a nice surprise i do think it's sort of hard to reconcile the terrified um squalling you know fleeing being it's revealed to be with the effect it has on people as to sort of like venom symbiote style thing that brings out the worst in you mm. like I suppose when you think about it there is a, a logic there where it's like it's very scared so it seeks out powerful creatures and then when in them it kind of uh, enhances and emphasizes the aspects aspects of their personality they're gonna seek out more power as well, almost to protect itself like it's like a very um biological response to this fear it has you know but at the same time it just I don't know, even when I say that, there, there, there does just feel a weird bridge from the kind of like like creature that's almost like um, you know, gloating about having taken over Tiffany with the terrified thing, mm. uh, you know, at, at, at the end. And there's a lot I like at the end, actually, I, I just checked it there and uh, this book came out in 2004, he was diagnosed uh, the Pratchett was diagnosed with Alzheimer's in late 2007, mm. so it's obviously well before that, but the bit at the end, I mean, uh, when Tiffany leads the hiver uh, into the afterlife and you get that wonderful reflection on, you know, what it means to be a witch standing on the edge, making difficult decisions, uh, really put me in mind of, like, assisted death, mm. which is obviously an issue that Terry Pratchett was very uh, concerned about and interested in after he was diagnosed with, with Alzheimer's. This notion of kind of being able to choose your own time to die and, and die with dignity Um and that's kind of very much what, what Tiffany does here. Mm.
0: Uh. Yeah, I did I did really like... I think I think we're both in agreement that like the way things wrap up with the hyper are, are actually satisfying. And I realized the issue that I have, yeah, it isn't the way how things wrap up. It's like you said, it's those moments where it's inside Tiffany's mind and it comes across as this very one-note evil antagonist. And that doesn't quite sync up with the way it's like uh, exhibited towards the end because it's more complex. It just it doesn't feel like something that like a creature who it turns out was just very confused would say. So yeah, that I think that's more an issue of the earlier parts of the writing more than the end. And I think that's why I have less of an issue with it, because if there's going to be an issue with any part of a character, I'd much rather it be somewhere in the middle as opposed to the way it's first introduced or when it's finished, because those are the two more most important parts. They're the bit that everyone's going to remember. So yeah, I take less issue with it as a result of that. Um, yeah, there's that that bits with um, you know all the things that the Hiver took over before, and that the guy who was researching mm-hmm. hivers. I feel like that was somewhat similar to Oswald, somewhere that something that didn't really go anywhere. Like it, it gives a little bit of exposition every now and then, but that's kind of it. Um,
1: yeah, well, I mean, you do have a tie into the kind of uh, identity bits with. When Tiffany is sort of uh, awoken from being the Hiver, she has to remember who she is and that she's not like the saber-to-tiger took over or the old unseen university professor. Mm. Um, like she keeps almost relapsing into uh, shadows of those identities. But you're right; the, uh, the kind of professor does more feel like a, a plot device to you know reveal about the, the true nature of Hivers. Mm. Have you ever read the Stephen King short story "I Am the Doorway"?
0: I am the sorry? I am the doorway uh I don't think so. Was it in the collection, or uh it was in night shift night shift. I think I have read that actually. Is that one of his earlier ones?
1: yeah, yeah, night shift is first short story collection. It's the one where your man gets all the eyes on his hand. oh yes, uh, sorry, I know I'm- some editions of the book have that in the cover um but you know that the part, it sort of yeah, reminded me of that where. Yeah, uh, he talks about seeing himself from those eyes, mm. and because Earth is so alien to them, they process everything as kind of like a threat. You know, the, I, I think at one point he, when he takes off the bandages and he sees another person, uh, like from the point of view of the eyes, this other human is some kind of like eldritch abomination, living monolith creature that, uh, you know, has to be destroyed as quickly as possible. Um, and they're sort of, uh, I got a similar feeling here where like the hiver, doesn't have to process anything so it's just perceiving any kind of an unusual sensation as this threat like something you or I see as like whatever a tree in a sunny mm. field in the middle of summer kind of it sees as this like terrible collection of abstract shapes that have no rhyme or reason mm. um, like so I just find that an interesting idea in general like kind of turning our perception onto what we perceive as the mundane or the everyday being seen as kind of like horrible to the point of life threatening fear to this other creature.
0: Yeah, that's an interesting idea, actually. Do you know, just a very small side note, something that I've forgotten now, but you've just reminded me uh, since again. Um, the notion of like, I, I know I brought this back to this a couple of times uh, with Terry Pratchett books, but like the idea of the horror of what's happening in this is. Um, at one point, it was very, very stark. Do you know when uh, Tiffany is talk while she's possessed with the hiver, she's talking away to Miss Level or Petulia or whatever, and then uh, it's very neat. Every now and then, you'll have uh, in the middle of the dialogue just uh, the words "help me," but the font is about yeah. like half the size of the regular font, and I found that ju- to be just absolutely terrifying. Was, um w- one of the things um one of the scariest things I've ever seen in my life and this is going to sound very cliche but in the movie The Exorcist um, great great! Mo- I've never heard of it it's this little indie thing um, came out in the 70s uh, like there's a lot of bits in that that a lot of people will typically refer to when they say it's very scary Is like oh the bit where she spider walks down the stairs or the bit where she turns her head around or even the legendary uh, crucifix masturbation scene all these bits that people refer to as being absolutely horrific but for me the most terrifying terrifying bit of that movie every single time is the bit where she's sleeping and the priests go in and they lift her her nightgown up and they can see the words help me carved into her flesh and that just oh my god that terrifies me to every single time I see it because it's so it it plays horrible tricks on your imagination the idea is like what is happening to her internally if like you know she's making this plea Mm -hmm. and yeah I found that a little bit terrifying and I guess a lot of this is like the threat to your identity something that like actually threatens who you are this, this feeds into this a lot. It's, it's funny how like that's played for laughs with, um, the Nat McFiegel where, you know, they're, uh, you know, <laughs> like say, Who, who's the knees, who's the knees again. And like, you know, I'm going to give yeah. it to you, but it's funny. Cause like the antagonist is a hiver, um, which it, it Calls to mind the likes of bees or ants or something like that, and it's funny because the Nat McFiegel are kind of enacting that very same thing. That they're this kind of complete entity made up of tiny, almost ant-like creatures, and yet it's still like just played for laughs. That's just a little tangent I just thought about. that was interesting.
1: Yeah, yeah, and I think with the Hiver too that um, the idea of uh, like humans having this wonderful and but in some ways perverse ability to just take anything and everything for granted and normalize things and kind of regard the wonder of the world with like, you know, um, I don't know, like jaded bemusement that just allows them to uh, get on with life mm. is something that he's touched on before, like I think Death's talked about it in other books. Uh, so it's, it's I don't know, was a fruitful area for him to explore and we see him doing it here through the Hiver.
0: Mm. I because because this is such a tight book like I feel like we're both in very much great appreciation of it and all but I'm not sure if there's an awful lot more to say unless you have anything else yeah, yeah
1: I've, no, I've I've expended the limits of my notes should be
0: uh get to rank in this. Um, Yeah, I guess we might as well. It is nice actually to have like a Terry Pratchett book like this um, because so used to having ones that touch upon so many things and as Mm -hmm. a result, it tends to be successful in some and maybe not so successful in others. So it's actually quite nice to have one where like expectations are lowered and it just pulls it all together like really quite nicely, I have to say. Um, Okay, so our list. Um, Yeah. So,
1: I'm looking at it here, and we've got the wee free man down at number twenty two definitely better uh, <laughs> yeah i i think it's uh, above that um like i say teeth of time is is above We free man better than teeth time
0: oh, i'd i'd say so um yeah i think so a lot a
1: lot tighter um maybe a little less ambitious but uh tighter more satisfying mm. amazing Morris.
0: I liked Amazing Morris a lot I think it had really interesting themes but again this was much tighter so I think I'd probably rank it above that too
1: Okie doke Weird Sisters? Mm,
0: yeah I think so I think I, I'd go up a few here like I'd probably compare it to say The Last Hero would you put it above that?
1: Oh that's that's something well, I really really like the, the Last Hero
0: Ok uh, yeah. how about Monstrous Regiment? I think
1: I I would probably have it with Monsters Regiment uh, because as much as, I mean look Monsters Regiment is 16th at the moment which may seem low but like this is a, a very steep curve to be grading on there's a lot of good books even below that but mm. I think Monsters Regiment, we probably ha- uh, found more to fault in Monsters Regiment than we can here mm. and while again you might say well Monsters Regiment bigger and more ambitious and there's kind of more room for faults, I don't think there's much of a sense that like the highs in Monsters Regiment are much higher than the highs in mm. uh, Half of the Sky you know? I agree yeah.
0: Uh, um, yeah just to skip The Last Hero for a second right because I know you like it a lot which is abroad would you rank this higher than that mm. so we're getting to the point now it's it's not it's not going to be much higher than this I don't think because this is around the point where we're getting to the real classics the Stone Cold classics yeah yeah uh, well
1: this, this is a tough one because uh, like it, it and so, as we mentioned earlier, Bill's on a lot of the same themes about what it means to be a witch, about what home is, mm. and your relationship to, to kind of home uh, compared to, to leaving it. Um, again, it's probably a lot uh, tighter and more well structured than Witches Abroad, which has this kind of very long drawn out comedy journey, uh, and then a somewhat like truncated month when they get to Genoa. Mm. Um,
0: I would I probably put it above. A, like it's, I love *Witches Abroad*. You know, I love that book, but just because this is so tight and it like deals so efficiently with the themes it's going for, I think I give it give it to that.
1: Uh, yeah, I I could just a bit agree. Like I uh, I find myself questioning whether maybe the highs in *Witches Abroad* or maybe some of them are a little higher than the highs in *Half*. Oh, absolutely!
0: Guy, yeah, yeah.
1: Uh, yeah, but at the same time. what, what as I begin to think about that, I begin to think that I'm, I'm doing a disservice to, to my but just to divert briefly into, um, there's two quotes very near the end of this that I just want to, to read. That One is like Tiffany giving as good an assessment of Granny Weatherwax as we ever get in any book. Um, it's at the end of chapter 14, and she says, who, who are you really in there? Did you want me to take your hat? You pretend to be the big, bad, wicked witch, and you're not. You test people all the time. Test, test, test. But you really want them to be clever enough to beat you. Because it must be hard being the best. Mm. You're not allowed to stop. You can only be beaten and you're too proud to ever lose. Pride. You've turned it into a terrible strength. But it eats away at you. Are you afraid to laugh in case you hear an early cackle? Which is just like a brilliant Mm. assessment of Granny Weatherock's character. And then we have another bit here when Tiffany's kind of back on the chalk and sort of coming to terms with her role as the witch of the chalk. Why do you go away so that you can come back so that you can see the place you came back from with new eyes and extra colours, and the people there see you differently too? Coming back to where you started is not the same thing as never leaving, which is simple but I just think beautiful. And um, there, there's a quote at the end of Life Fantastic when Two Flower kind of has this like garbled uh, chat with Rincewind about like why he's going back to the Agadian Empire. And I actually used it in a lecture I gave to like American study abroad students in the last class about them kind of dealing with going back to the States after spending uh, whatever it was, like you know, 12, 14 weeks in Europe. Mm. Um, and where I'd be doing that lecture again, I'd, I'd replace it with this quote, which I think is kind of touched on the same uh, themes, but is a little tighter. Like uh, when I look back at stuff like that, I, I realized I'm probably underrating the the highs of this book. You know, mm. like there's just some fantastic writing and observations in it. So, yeah, I'm happy to see it go above which is a broad uh, Reaper man
0: head of time. Uh, just to say, I'm really glad that you said that last quote because I have that written out in my book as well. I think it's funny because um, <laughs> I I remember when I was doing like the English board here, so I have an English board for Japanese students uh, for like just full of Terry Pratchett like pictures and like little quotes and things. And I was looking for some of the best ones, and that one is actually ranked as like one of the. It constantly pops up that one. It's like because it's such a simplistic beautiful quote. It's just like, oh, it's great. Very, very nice. Um so Reaper Man, um this is this is again like we're we're measuring it against like Reaper Man is very ambitious and again it has great highs but also some considerable issues as well. So
1: Yeah, it will actually notice in looking at the list here, we have three books in a row that in in, in men at arms, which is a broader Reaper man, that like all have kind of similar problems of having like weird structures or a sense of like you know not all the the plot lines or not all the elements of it are worthy of the attention that are given to them but the ones the main ones make up for it yeah, you know
0: yeah
1: uh, and like Reaper Man again yeah you have this very kind of parallel plot lines running along that that does I don't know like hurt the narrative momentum of it but Jesus Reaper Man's highs are dizzyingly high like the you know uh death knew that what is it to take one life to change the fate of the cosmos, but the Bill Door that was all so much horse elbows and he runs inside the yeah. the child. Oh. You know, and it the a battle with the uh the, the new death at the end and <sighs> uh Mrs. Flitworth giving him her wedding dress to uh um sharpen his
0: sky on. Even the metaphors of like the shopping centre like getting it, even though that's like kind of mishandles, the the idea behind it is fantastic you know so uh, yeah, yeah i'd say if at an absolute push like if you felt that like it could go above it i could just about squeeze it but personally i would probably put it below reaper man
1: yeah i'm i'm happy enough with that with a uh, hatful sky as the new number 14 below reaper man above which is abroad uh, again this is i'm sure people would, would disagree it's very much it's like it is it's very much a subjective thing where you know, we can admit that Reaper Run has flaws, the Happily Sky doesn't. But the, yeah, the, in my memory of it now, that the, it's kind of its uh, positive points are just
0: too much yeah. to uh, mm. overcome. Absolutely, yeah. But And this is like a subjective list. This is the thing. I mean, this is as much for ourselves as it is for you, because it's nice to be able to look at them all and remember in our heads why we like these books and... Yeah, for Reaper Man, I remember. Like, I remember at the time I came out of it, loving that book and ready, ready to argue that it was like new number one. But it was only because you kind of outlined all the issues with the structure, and I kind of came to realize, yeah, it actually is a book with lots of problems. Just happens to be written brilliantly in some places that are easily, yeah. easily willing to let it slide. So, yeah, but I'm actually surprised that this one is as high as it is because after the We Free Men, which I didn't enjoy as much as i'd hoped i kind of had a bad taste in my mouth in terms of the tiffany Aiken books and i kind of had it in my head they were all going to follow suit but i'm delightfully surprised how well this was written and how much i enjoyed it so good it's good, it's good to know
1: yeah yeah absolutely um so that's that's uh half of a sky number 14 below reaper man above which is abroad uh, next time we'll be tackling Gone postal uh which, as the son of a postman, I'm very much looking forward to. Yeah. Uh, i never—it's another one that I had read before, and I've already begun reading it, um, and I'm really, really finding uh, a lot to talk about there. But that's for next time. In the meantime, uh, you can find us on Twitter and Facebook at Radio Moreport. You can get in touch with us by email at radio at gmail uh, you want to hear episodes? Can find them on uh, SoundCloud, Podcast Addict, iTunes, a whole host of places. If you want to leave us a rating and a review on any of those places, that's always nice. Helps us, uh, uh, helps boost our fragile egos, mm. and just helps, um, I suppose, like uh, boost the popularity of podcasts and, and get it out there to maybe uh, some people who, who may not have heard of it. Mm. But uh, that is us for now. Shine. see you
0: next time. Take it easy and good luck.